Welcome to episode 42 of The Photo Show. Uh, here we are on this uh, very cold, wintry day. Uh, I, I am very tired from uh, shoveling and clearing ice off the cars. How about you, Kai? What have you been doing? Uh, well, I shouldn't even be here speaking to you because I should be basking in the mm. brisk weather in Ireland right now. But uh, the storm came through yesterday just when I was supposed to fly out, and uh, I had to cancel my trip. So um, I went around Manhattan today going to various bike stores, but I did not shovel any snow. I watched other people do it. Apartment living. Woo! Yeah, no, that was, that was too bad. We're both on our spring breaks from our college university and uh, uh, you had a whole week set up in Ireland. Yeah, exactly. Now, but Columbia is fancy. We have spring recess, not break, oh. spring recess. So <laughs> FYI. But yeah, so uh, uh, here, here I am. Um, <laughs> uh, speaking of things that are coming up, which we'll be able to go see that have nothing to do with spring break or snow. Um, APAD is coming up and uh, that's going to be March 30th through April 2nd here in New York. And it's the first year that they're going to be holding it uh, out at uh, one of the piers, one of the piers instead of at the armory. So it's supposed to be, you know, just massive and compared to uh, the size of previous years. So that's going to be interesting um, for a couple of things that are related to the show for there. So uh, Giancarlo Roma, who uh, we have had on as a guest and discussed Haywire Press, he's got a booth set up at uh, in the special book section. So because they've expanded it, they're having a whole section for book and book publishers and uh Giancarlo will be there with Haywire Press books, you know, these amazing Lee Friedlander books that you can't get anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And I'm also happy to say that he's given over a section for SPQR editions as well. So you'll be able to go and see my book there, too, as long with the uh, four other photographers who we've mentioned before. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So that's coming up soon. Uh I, I know I don't go every year, but I'm definitely going to go this year just to see what the new format is like and... Uh, and wander about. Yeah, no, I'm going to try to make it there as well. Uh, so um, tomorrow night uh, in New York at the uh, Italian Cultural Institute on Park Avenue, uh, there's an exhibit called The Great Beauty. Uh, it involves uh, four Italian photographers um, and one American photographer. And the American photographer is Leo Rubenfein, former guest uh, of the show. Exactly. And uh, yeah, Probably by the time you listen to this, it'll be too late to go to the opening, but the show will be up for a little while, so you can go check that out. If it's all photographs from Rome, right? Yeah, five photographers and the city of Rome, uh, curated by Marco uh, DeLogu, if I've said that correctly, and now I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm sure not, but that's fine. All right. <laughs> right each hello, hello to all our Italian yes. <laughs> listeners. Sorry. So uh, uh, from the, the show site, uh, each photographer conveyed to the project his signature style, his identity. These chosen works shared a, a particular common sensitivity toward the beauty of the capital of Italy. Yeah, so I'm going to check that out, and you're going to check that out uh, with me, right, Kai? Yep. In fact, uh, I think uh, Thomas Rome and I are counting on you driving us there. <laughs> oh, okay. That's right. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> FYI. <laughs> I'm all in. Yeah, all right. exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, this episode is all about um, uh, the Penumbra Foundation through its director, uh, Jeffrey Berliner. And uh, if you don't know, I, I, I only heard about Penumbra maybe two or three years ago uh, when we brought our summer photography intensive class there. And um, it's it's an amazing place. I mean, they've mm -hmm. got a lot going on. And uh, I know that one thing Jeffrey uh, emphasizes is this idea of 
it be, really being a community there. So, you know, for those who are interested in a range of alternative processes and also just uh, other ways of, of working with photography, they've got so much to offer, right? Yeah, it was a, a great conversation. Uh, you know, Jeffrey has a, an incredible passion for this organization. Uh, he's got some great future plans, and that's when he gets really excited during the show. He's talking about, um, you know, all the things they want to do in terms of education and uh, not only um, teaching photography and, and photographers all these great historical and alternative processes, but uh, also, you know, teaching them how, how maybe how to survive while they're they're practicing, uh, you know, all this great photography. Yeah, that sounds right. I mean, so in addition to having the resources and being able to take classes there, they also do portfolio reviews. Uh, I know one of our other uh, former guests, uh, Libby Pratt from Camera Club of New York, was doing a portfolio review there just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, they've got a lecture series. I went and saw uh, Andrea Modica speak, and uh, I know they've got a number of great uh, guests coming up real soon. So they're just uh, a plethora of things to go there to to check out. Yeah, it's actually too much to list. Instead of listing all the the great things they do and all the different opportunities they have and all the different venues within this one building, um, uh, it'll make a lot more sense if you just uh, listen to the episode and and hear uh, Jeffrey describe everything. That's right. We're not going to give a cliff notes of the <laughs> talk. Right now. But I will give you, there is a teaser. So a teaser is if you listen to the whole episode, you'll figure out what thing, what object mm-hmm. that I went to eBay afterwards and bought because of this conversation with Jeffrey. So that, that'll be the teaser for uh, listening to the very end. Yes. Yeah, that was a, that was a great, actually it was a great last question because a little bit more of a teaser. Uh, he, he speaks about things that interest him with the same kind of passion, right? So it's it's not it isn't just photography because he brings a a a, a very uh, a rounded and philosophical background to everything he does, and so um, there's a he speaks very passionately about a, a number of different things. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, I hope everyone enjoys this episode and uh, talk to you soon. Yeah, enjoy the show, everyone, and we will talk soon. Photoshop's back on the road. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're sitting here on, uh, I guess it's East 30th or? East 30th. Yeah, we're on East 30th uh, at the Penumbra Foundation. Is the What's the full name, should we? Oh, the Penumbra Foundation or, you know, Penumbra Foundation. We went back and forth about the The. <laughs> the, the. Uh. I remember there was a band in the 80s called The The. You remember right. that? Remember right. that? Yeah. Yes. See, we're, we're aging, we're dating ourselves. <laughs> aging, we're aging and dating ourselves at the same time. Right off the bat. Right. Yeah. The, the. There was another band called Free Beer. You remember that one? No, that I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. So of course, if we would come for the group. anyway. Yeah. So um, we're here. Uh, we just we just go with Penumbra Foundation. Okay, we're here at Penumbra Foundation on uh, let's see, it's actually 36 East 30th Street, and we're in your tintype studio, which has a great uh, array of windows right open onto the sidewalk. We're like literally, I can. There's some guy walking by right now. We're waving. Hi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I, I imagine part of the decision also to have this here was as people walk by, they could see this uh, amazing camera and people getting uh, their portraits made and 
things yeah, like that. Yeah, it was right? yeah, it was a mix of reasons. Um, one of them certainly was visibility; people can see what we were doing, and it was an attraction. Um, another reason was there was no other space at the time <laughs> where we could put it. Uh-huh. Um, interestingly enough, it was going to be an exhibition space, and it was for a short while. Um, and then we, we decided it was better to use it as a tintype studio. And then as time goes on, um, it's going to become a retail space because and what we sell in the store, it might be equipment, it might be film, it might be analog-related items, or, or other things could be chemistry, images, uh, to help support our programs because we are a nonprofit organization and it's a wonderful retail space uh, that we can use um, to help bring people into this into the organization and help fund programs. So that's what's going to happen. The Tintype Studio will then move uh, to another location in the building. Oh, so it'll be a, a real storefront for alternative processes then? Yes, it'll be a real storefront for, 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 for photography. People are passionate about photography. There'll be books um, and other things. We want to support artists, especially those uh, working in these processes. And if they, we want to have a library of books that we can sell, sell their books, have signed copies, things like that sort of thing. And nice. I've got to imagine that one of the challenges of... Uh, you know, having a place like this and being so involved in it is uh, the sort of impossibility of an elevator pitch, right? I mean, uh, we got here and it's it takes about at least 15 minutes to download just a, a hint of all of the stuff that you guys are doing here. You know, it's, 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 an interesting, it's an interesting conundrum because there are so many things going on. Photography is a very, uh, how would I put it, it's a very layered uh, medium uh, and it's a very, and, and there's so many different aspects to it. And I think as time marches on, uh, it's very easy as, you know, processes and capture, ways of capturing and making images comes about, um, it's easy to forget the ones that came before. Mm. And it's easy to forget that everything that came before really supports what we have now, which is a huge, you know, reason why we do what we do. People are passionate about here at Penumbra about everything photographic. And that also includes digital, but, you know, digital as it, you know, came about through the different photographic processes and history of photography. And it's very difficult to encapsulate the history of photography in a soundbite or in one particular aspect of it. And the people who are involved in our community are people who love photography. They're really passionate about photography. That's what we champion here. People who love photography in all its permutations and all its uh, way of practice, um, from, from art photography to photojournalism to documentary photography to commercial photography, street photography. Um, everybody brings in their community brings something that they're interested in. And, you know, photography is a vast, vast medium. It's a vast subject. Yeah, that's always been its um, part of its popularity, of course, part of its success, um, but also part of, um, you know, its criticism. You know, the, the defining photography has been a, a hobby for many since the birth of photography, right, since it was uh, invented. It, as whether it's uh, an art, a science, uh, if it's art at all, uh, is it documentary, is it commercial, and of course it's everything, right? Exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, the the idea, um, it's funny you mentioned art and science, you know, um, Penumbra is about the art and science of photography. We're here to maintain the relevancy. You can't have one without the other. So, you know, the idea is that you can't have a photograph without science on any, you know, on any level. Yeah. So... Uh, I make the comparison between cars. We all get into cars and we drive them around. You know, but somebody designed that car, somebody designed the, the internal combustion engine, somebody designed uh, the way it uses gasoline and, and, and refineries, and, you know, we don't think about them when we get into the car. Uh, at this point, most people buy a digital camera, they use their iPhone, uh, and they have no idea what came before so they can make that image. And I think 
an organization like ours, which is an education and arts organization, is interested in educating people about every aspect of it, not just the um, artistic or the image capturing part of it or the editing part of it um, or the vision part of it, but also the technical aspects of it as well. But I think they both inform. I think I, I would contend that a, a photographer is a better photographer if they understand every aspect of it uh, and not just one. Um, people will argue with me about that. <laughs> They're welcome to do it. I welcome it. But well, it, um, it's a generous medium, so there are people who get away without not knowing. But right. uh, but like just like being a, a, a musician, if you pick if you pick up an instrument or a guitar, I play guitar, and if you the more you know about how that instrument works, the more you're going to be able to express yourself with it, right? Sure. Or, you know, just for the sake of argument, you know, you pick up different instruments, they have different sounds, they have different tonal qualities, they have different ways they feel, the strings feel a different way, and there's a particular relationship between the, the, the person playing that instrument and the instrument. And, you know, one could feel perfect for one person and not perfect for the other person. Um, and photography is like that, one camera, one medium, one process, one lens. Uh, it's a huge puzzle that I think everybody who engages the process finds their own way, they find their own path. One lens, for whatever reason, works well for this person where it doesn't work for that person. One process works, you know, Sally Mann, perfect example. You know, she found what plate collision photography. Um, her vision is very strong, the process doesn't overpower it, but her coming together with that process with her vision is the perfect match. Mm. So, you know, there's that aspect to it as well. There's some people that, for whatever reason, they work perfectly in digital photography. Um, and they can shoot many, many, many pictures with it. But there's a photographer, Bruce Weber, who, you know, shoots analog. And he shoots, you know, a, I think a Pentax 67. And um, he shoots, you know, he shoots that camera like it was a digital camera. So he found his way with analog the way some people shoot with digital. And, you know, everybody finds what works for them. So... Photography offers that, and it's a wonderful way of thinking about it. Well, one thing you've got going for you here is this incredible collection of uh, materials, not just uh, end processes that are going on. So, you know, I I think uh, Michael and I are both educators. We, you know, teach photography, and at some point in all of our classes, you, you talk about historical processes, you talk about how one thing led to another, but you don't always have, uh, you can't always just pull open a drawer and say, see what I mean? Like, right. this is the lens that was used in, you know, back then, and this right. is what, you know, how it affected that, and here's a print made with that process today using right. this technology, so... That that's got to be an incredible part of uh, of what you have here, and ex- the experience for your students and the and the people who come through here. Yeah, I mean, even for myself, I mean, I you know, I love collecting. I love knowledge. I love um, the object. I love what these things can do. I mean, I love the idea that a lens is not only an object, but it does something. It makes something. It creates something. And I like the idea of image making instead of image taking. Image making, and there are so many different layers and things that you need to make an image. You know, equipment, you know, uh, the medium itself, um, vision, understanding the process, expertise, technique. But to get to your point about, you know, collecting um, and to get back to the technical side of things, you know, somebody had a design that photography was invented and we needed slower or, or quicker exposure times and we needed more speed and we needed sharpness and we needed flat field. You know, necessity uh, is truly the mother of invention. You know, as photography marched on through the industrial a revolution, the need came about for certain kinds of optics to achieve certain things. So photography essentially was the first use for portraiture. So, you know, the first lenses to make them fast, they had a curved field. They didn't figure out how to make them flat field. So um, that reduced the exposure time and made them sharp. 
uh, in the center, but not on the outside. So, you know, the idea of figuring these things and understanding these things helped to inform us uh, about the history of photography from a technical perspective. But I love this idea that um, in our present day, uh, artists will take those lenses and use them in a different way as they can be used, you know, for artistic expression. So the Petzl portrait lens, for instance, I always love talking about that lens, was used at the center for the sweet spot uh, for sharp images. But, you know, we like to use the curved or the swirl and the bokeh and the out-of-focus areas that weren't used in the 19th century. So I like that sort of back and forth. But as time went on, they needed flat field. If you wanted to have a group of people in a portrait, you wanted them all sharp, that curved field wasn't going to help you any, but you still needed speed. And, um, and then you needed a flat field um, for landscape and, and architecture. And as every challenge came about, there was somebody who had to design an optical company, and a mathematician, an engineer, who had to figure out these problems. And I love the idea of uh, engaging that and learning about that, exploring that, because that's part of the greater story of the history of photography. Yeah, like when you see those portraits of where they would put people into a, like a group into a corner or they would they would uh, photograph them ramped out into corners right. because they were taking advantage of it, it would be sharp. The field, yeah, right. these people would be sharp. They knew they had a car field and they can see it on the ground glass. So keep in mind, yeah. they yeah. weren't looking at a digital you know, right. LED screen. They were looking on the ground to see what was sharp. A large ground glass, usually. Right. Uh, but yes, that um, you, you brought up Petzl, of course, and. Uh, that swirly depth of field is now very uh, desirable. Yeah, it's uh, very popular. Now, well, and to the point where they've, they've started issuing new lenses, right? Right, and I, I had some, you know, I didn't have, I had something to do that I helped promote it, and I spoke to them about it, and, um, and they used some of my images, many of my images in their literature, and I have a good relationship with the Lomography organization who brought out that lens. Um, and I think the reaction to the clinical nature of, um, technical aspects of photography, especially as it is being manufactured and produced today. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I think that, you know, technical and optical engineers and camera companies want sharpness, they want saturation, they want flat field, um, they want resolution, and that's the direction they're always going to go. But what happens is you get this sort of, you know, clinical look where everything looks the same. And I think with a digital chip, which is sort of unforgiving in that way, you know, we're getting to the point where, you know, this chip is better than that chip. Well, you know, the human eye can't tell the difference anyway. I mean, you know, there are people that like that aspect of it, but people are looking for ways to differentiate, differentiate themselves and make images, especially on a digital platform, finding a way that they can, you know, take that medium, that palette, and, and alter it and make it. And lenses and optics are one, you know, very good way uh, of doing that with, with digital. So it's not only the Petzl portrait lens that they're using, but they have a new lens, the Acromat, which was based on the earliest uh, Chevalier design, 1839. But, you know, many people, myself included, would take early lenses. You know, they take early movie camera lenses or um, other types of, you know, they could be Leica lenses from the 50s or the 60s, uh, single-coated lenses, um, all different kinds of lenses, and mount them on their uh, digital mirrorless cameras because the distance is so short right. between the, yes. the, the, the film plane or the chip and the mount that all you need to do is pull that lens a little far away so that any possibility, and I do a great deal then, I love doing it, I love getting these different effects and seeing what the chip can do. You know, one thing I love is the monochrome camera because it, it gives you true uh, grayscale um, on a digital chip, it's not reinterpreted. So that's right. one thing that I like. Yeah, they don't have the Bayer filter. You know, the, the Bayer color array filter, exactly. Yeah. And, and of course, um, uh, I think you say it on uh, your website, uh, we're not that far from the original 291 gallery. Right. right. And that is 
sounds very similar to the conversations they were they were having about where photography was going and and you know what photography should look like and the difference between that very mechanical uh, precise nature right. and it's more impressionistic nature um, yeah I mean it's interesting because I think about that a lot I was very I got interested in, in especially large format and early photography because I was very uh, much um, you know influenced inspired by Alfred Stieglitz the photo secession movement 291 with 291 Fifth Avenue that's, that, that, that's what that refers to that's a block and a half west of us on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 30th Street we're between Park and Mad um, and this whole area was um, dedicated to um, photographic suppliers, galleries, yes. portrait galleries, as it moved up from Lower Manhattan in the 1830s and 40s. I think uh, moving up to the 1860s and 70s, it moved up to this area, and not as much of that exists anymore, but you know, right down the block uh, from here, I think at 32 East 36th Street with a, a distributor who distributed Struss, Victoria Lenz Struss, with a friend of um, Carl Struess, S-T-R-U-S-S, with a friend of Alfred Stieglitz, who created his own lens, a quartz lens for, for soft-focused effect. Um, that was distributed two blocks down from where we're sitting. <laughs> so I love context. I love you know becoming oriented to, to what came before. Uh, most people don't realize that there's all this history literally right around them. So, I mean, I bought a stereo lens pair. It was a, a, a wet plate, Chloe, and stereo lens pair, consecutive numbers, not long ago. And I looked at the name on the lens. It said C.J. Fox. I went to the Daguerrean um, registry. I found out that he was a daguerreotypist, um, a wet plate Collodian photographer, portrait gallery, also distributed gear. His home was that he had a gallery in the Bowery, um, and his home was at, like, 321 Fourth Avenue, hmm. and I'm like Fourth Avenue. Well, Fourth Avenue became Park Avenue South, right? Which is down the block from where we are. Which is literally, um, he lived around the corner from where I'm using his lenses again in our tintype portrait studio. So to, just to get back to Stieglitz, Stieglitz, you know, had this idea that photography, uh, even though it was being used clinically, uh, was a wonderful artistic medium, and he really wanted to elevate. Um, photography to an art form in the style of uh, the salon painters of the period. And in order to do that, and there are those who will argue whether it was misguided or not, but that was the style of the time, that he wanted to create photographs that look more like paintings. They had a painterly quality, and there were many ways to do that. You can do that with the lens, so focus lenses, which were very popular um, really through the 18, you know, 80s, 90s, 90s to the 1930s until, um, you know, the F64 uh, club with Ansel Adams and Weston. And that group decided, you know, clinical sharp was the way to create art. It's a whole other discussion, but okay. that period um, was a very interesting period because you can use different kinds of watercolor paper to print on. You use these processes, these handmade processes of platinum printing, gum uh, bichromate, bromoil, oil, painterly qualities to to, to, to make an image look like a painting rather than a clinical photograph. People like Heinrich Kuhn and um, Gertrude Kasebier and um, even early Weston, I think even Ansel Adams was part of that movement. I, I think from our perspective, as art photography and, photography and art in general, you know, it's becoming more conceptual. In fact, I don't even know that I refer to art photography anymore. I think I would say artists, and they decide on a medium. You know, like I, um, there's a wonderful artist, Adam Foose, who um, works in 19th century historic processes, does photograms. You know, I would call him an artist. I wouldn't call him really a photographer, per se. And I, you know, Cindy Sherman, you know, is she an artist or is she a photographer? Um, I think, you know, art now is driven, conceptually driven. And photography 
has a relationship to making the art, whereas I would, you know, maybe characterize photography differently. I think art photography would be different than, say, documentary photography, photojournalism, street photography, which the medium is really very present. You know, photography is very present in those uh, endeavors. So uh, I'm curious, like, when did the photography bug, you know, if we want to use that term, when did, when did you become aware of photography and become, you know, passionate about it and that led you to where you are today? Um, you know, I, it's, I, it's funny, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a good question because I, like many other photographers, I used to go to the ICP lecture series, you know, mm-hmm. for I, I would say the better part of 30 years, though, I was a member of the ICP for years and years and years. And they had a wonderful lecture series every Wednesday night. It was hosted by Phil Block. There was the um, deputy director of programs and then director of education. And um, he's still there and, you know, a wonderful influence. And um, every Wednesday he would uh, bring, um, you know, artists who would come and show their work and talk about it. And I thought it was a wonderful way to learn about photography, art photography. Sometimes he would bring photojournalists. Sometimes he would be fashion photographers. Sometimes it would be... You know, um, I saw Roy DeCarava there. I saw Elliot Erwitt there. I mean, um, you name the photographer, I saw them speak. And, and then you get to, you know, meet them and ask questions, uh, learn about their process. And the question often came up, you know, how did you first you know, learn about, how did you get involved with photography? And so many times it was like I was given a camera at a very young age. Yeah, we've heard that over yeah. and over again, yeah. <laughs> and that's my story as well. Uh, my father, who was uh, an art teacher at the High School of Art and Design in New York City, was also a photographer, gave me my, my first camera. I remember the Kodak Instamatic. I still have it. He, he passed mm-hmm. away about five or six years ago. I was going through his stuff, and lo and mm-hmm. behold, there was my camera mm-hmm. with a rubber band wrapped around it with the manual <laughs> that he put aside for me. When I moved out, he still had it, and there it was. Nice. I mean, and I remember that camera very well, and I, and, and I still have some of the images made from it. Um, and my grandfather was a photographer and a photo retoucher at the New York Times wow. um, in the 1920s who went to Cooper Union. So... You know, New York City, photography, history of photography, being um, introduced to at a young age, it, it really is sort of um, informed uh, and influenced, you know, my engaging photography later in life. I never uh, was interested particularly in pursuing it as a profession. And I think I can still say now that I wouldn't call myself a professional photographer. I'm sort of more of an administrator, executive director of Penumbra Foundation, building programs. That's sort of more as I see my identity in the photo world. But I do make images, and I've been doing it for, you know, really just about all my life. I'm 55, so I probably got that camera when I was about, you know, nine or ten years old. Mm-hmm. And so I've been shooting pictures. I still have all my contact sheets and mm-hmm. I have all my negatives. Um, then little by little I'm beginning to go through those. And I just, and I love the equipment. And I, love, I love the idea of holding the camera and looking through it and figuring out how it works. I remember I had my Instamatic, then I had a K1000 Pentax. Then I remember having an AE1. And then <laughs> my father always had Leicas that I could never touch. He had Leicas <laughs> and Rollies. You know, he can drop them and break them. But of course, I couldn't go and, you know. Uh, and I decided I, you know, I really wanted to have a Leica. So when I was in graduate school, I was um, studying religion and philosophy. I didn't study photography, I studied religion and philosophy. I was studying. Um, I was living in Cambridge, Harvard Divinity School, and I was a teaching fellow, and I got a stipend, or I got, um, you know, payment for being a teaching fellow. I remember teaching three, I was teaching three sections for this one class, and each section paid like $2,200. Wow. You know, because they couldn't find another TA. So I got over $6,000. And this is in the 19th. That was a lot of money. Yeah, sure. Sure. Back yeah. Then. yeah, yeah. So did you go to like Ferranti Daigi or something? Ferranti Daigi was across the street. They developed the film, <laughs> but there was a place, I think it was called Arlington Camera. Hmm. I'm not sure if it's still there. It was up Mass Avenue beyond 
Harvard Square. Beyond Harvard Square. Beyond, it was beyond... Probably even beyond Porter and Beyond Davis. Porter. It was yeah. like, you know, not that far, but into Arlington on Math Avenue. And he had a beautiful Leica CL, hmm. which I uh, still have. It was a CL with the 40-millimeter Rokor. Oh, beautiful lens. Love that lens. With the light meter. <laughs> because back then, there were only two cameras that had the light meter built in. There were the M5. Which right. no one liked. Um, yeah. Which no one liked. It was big and it <laughs> yeah. was you know, like a brick. Uh, and the CL. Mm. Or I could have gotten, you know, an M, you know, an M, what, an M3 or an M4, whatever, whatever it was. I, I really loved that CL. It was small and you could still, you know, put the 90, the 28. And I shot that camera, you know, for years and years and years, brought it all over the you know, mm. world, shooting it, and then, you know, moved on, you know, so, from there to larger format. But you, we, we jumped right over it. You were studying philosophy and religion, and then later, later you went to Harvard Divinity. Right. What were you thinking you were going to do? I was thinking I was to become a professor. I, mean, I studied comparative world religions, 19th and 20th century philosophy, mostly, you know, continental philosophy, people like Heidegger, Gadamer, Husserl, Hegel. Um, and then Japanese Buddhist thought, 19th century, a guy named Nishitani, and the correlation between these philosophies. Um, Buddhist thought was, you know, very important. And I, I got my master's, and I was going to go on and get my... And I did. I went to University of Hawaii for about a year, and I didn't like the program there, and I left. And at, the, at that time, I was worried about, you know, employment. There were many positions available for people doing Buddhist, <laughs> Buddhist thought, especially the very esoteric form that I was interested in doing. Hmm. Uh, another guy named Nishida, I was very interested in Kataro Nishida, was a 19th century Buddhist thought. I was interested more in philosophy and thought, not really in practice. There were some people that went to Buddhist thought. But I sort of, you know, decided when I was in Hawaii, I didn't really enjoy it. I was, at the time, I was very into collecting, you know, which, which would lead up to the lenses, but I was collecting uh, vintage fountain pens, and I loved, because I was writing a lot, and I loved my father had fountain pens, my grandfather had fountain pens. I had some of my father's, my grandfather's fountain pens, and they didn't work, so I wanted to repair them, and there was nobody repairing them, and I was buying them at the flea market was down the block. So uh, little by little, I learned how to repair them, and other people wanted them repaired. So they started giving them to me, and I wasn't even charging them, and somebody said, hey, you can make money doing this, you can charge people. I said, people are going to pay for this? <laughs> they said, yeah. So then I tried to try and turn into a business. I did that for about 10 years. Was that oh, still wow. in Hawaii? Or? No, I, oh. um, I left Hawaii, came back to New York, and started the business in New York, and was repaired pen for the better part of 10, 10 years, always shooting and getting more and more into photography, but thinking of the hobby, you know, not right. thinking of the profession. And during that 10 years, I imagine you were going to ICP then. I was going to the ICP all that time. Yeah. I was taking pictures and shooting and, you know, and, and I was, you know, I was in the photo community in the way I wanted to engage it. I did not, was not interested in commercial photography. I wasn't interested in taking something that I love so much and commercializing it because I, what happened with the, with fountain pens, and then I got into antiques, American arts and crafts and pottery. All from that period, photo secession was that period of this tie-in between uh, American Arts and Crafts, Art Nouveau, photo secession, um, Tiffany Studios. I was collecting that as well. Mm. Art glass, art pottery, decorative arts, textiles, paintings. And the photography of that period fit right into that, you know, right around nine, circa 1910, is the term I like to use. Um, I thought, you know, wonderful artistic period. Also, these, you know, the thing about um, the arts and crafts movement, it was tied to guilds. The idea was in reaction to the Industrial Revolution, where people were becoming a sort of a dispensable, right? And, right. Uh, and the arts and crafts movement was in reaction to that because they had guilds. The idea was to employ people making things. And photography, the kind of photography I like was making things. 
so all of these things are tied away, uh, tied together in that way. Do you? Uh, I wonder. Do you see a, then a, a a connection to the, that interest in the in the philosophy in that world and this photography that you're attracted to this this type of very photography? very clearly because yeah. I think as time marches on, where we become more and more of a technical society, where we come we become sort of removed from is a better word I can think of um, alienated from making things. There's also a sense of a lack of community. There's also a virtual community instead of a real community. And I think that's what we do at Penumbra. The idea we bring people together into a space, whether it's in a workshop, whether it's in a lecture, whether it's in an exhibition, you're bringing people together to look at things that were made. And there's also this idea, this is a contemplative nature to making something and a tactile nature of working with something. I like to use the word organic. Uh, what we do here is of the organic nature because you're working with materials. And you're working with things that came from somewhere. Um, a photograph has made, you can argue that a digital camera has things that are from the earth. Everything is from the earth. But there's this sort of disconnect. There's not this direct relation to making something. You know, when you are making a platinum print and you pour that chemical onto that platinum after it's been exposed and you see it just coming from There's a sense of magic and mystery that's wonderful about it. And there's also the idea of continuing to develop your skills and your technique, which also sometimes informs your art and the way you look at that. But the idea of the, the thing, the thinginess, the object, the image object that you are creating and making, not just taking. When I think of taking, I think of capture. When I think of making, there are these different layers to bringing something in the world and the idea that that thing will endure beyond yourself. There's a sense of immortality through a, an image or an object that continues to exist beyond you. So, you know, tintypes have been around for 150 years. They, they look almost exactly the way they were made, and they still suffer. They're still in the world. You find them at the flea market, whether it's somebody's right. collection, whether they're at the Met. And there's something wonderful about having that. And I think the digital age, which is becoming so virtual, it's sort of an oxymoron virtual, because it's not real. Virtual means real, and it's really not real. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. Right. I mean, you know, That's photographs are not real either. They're abstractions. They're not, you right. know, reality. Reality is reality. There's, uh, but the idea that um, these things exist in a cloud, they exist in, in, on a chip, they exist on your computer, the medium changes, the way we access it changes. Um, it's reliant on electricity. You know, a photograph uh, that was taken 150 years ago, if the lights went out, when the sun comes up, you can go out and look at it. <laughs> You know, if your computer has no electricity, you can't see those images. And I think it's sort of a trap. And, and one of the other things we do here is conservation and also talking about conserving your photographs. And also, we even we're going to have a workshop about how to conserve your digital images, whether to print them or find a way to back them up. Right. Because we're going to have generations of people who make images that are going to be lost because they lose their computer, they lose their phone. They, uh, the medium changes, you can't access them, uh, you know, CD discs, a lot of these images are on CD disc or a floppy disk, those are deteriorating. Yeah, those yeah. are very fugitive, they're all good. Um, and there is, whereas we have generations and generations of, you know, physical photographs, photographic objects, there's going to be, I think, large parts of photographic history that are going to be lost because... Uh, people and I'm talking. I'm not talking about you know museums and companies and 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 whoever. I'm also talking about vernacular. I'm talking about people on their computers. I'm talking about people. Uh, so I think these are right. these are important things to consider moving forward. But people don't make family albums anymore because no. they just load to Facebook. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then Facebook owns them, and then they <laughs> whatever. It's interesting that um, when we you know we mentioned uh, Stieglitz, we talked about uh, the F64 group and these people 
one of the things that photography was always pushing against was the then the idea of uh, and being an age of mechanical reproduction, you know, Roland Barthes and all this other stuff. But now, you know, I would say today, if you are going into a dark room and making a physical print, you know, these are handmade objects. And so it can, in relation to the digital slash virtual world of, uh, you know, image captures and sharing online and being in the cloud, as you said, uh, there's actually, I mean, there's a, it is impossible to really make two prints that look exactly the same. You are, there is a physicality to it. You are going in and making this handmade object, albeit through this mechanical process. But it's you know it's impossible to remove the the hand of the maker from that. Um, that's true, uh, certainly with silver gelatin, and especially true with you know nineteenth century. We're getting. I think we're getting away. I I I, I, I know many daguerreotypists and what play cloning photographers. The idea that they're getting away from alternative photography, even though I think that term alternative has a place if you do an emulsion lift or if you're doing a digital negative and you're doing a contact print, that's alternative. That's not historical, right? So mm -hmm. we need a term for that. Right. But, but I'll, I'll use the term historical processes when we talk about what play clodian or daguerreotype or platinum print because these are processes that were created at a time a particular way. So, you know, to answer your question, you know, when you make an, when you use a historical process, it's each print, especially for the contact print, if, if, if the chemistry is even changing, or the humidity changes, from print to print it's going to be different. And a very interesting story about that is there's a wonderful um, gallerist named Hans Krauss, Hans P. Krauss, Sun Pictures, he's up on the upper uh, east side. And he is a gallerist and a dealer in very early photographic artists and images, you know, Julia Margaret Cameron. And I remember visiting him a couple of years ago. and. And, um, and there was a Julie Margaret Cameron image on the wall. I can't remember which one it was. And I said, wouldn't it be interesting to see how her printing style changed over the years? He goes, oh, well, let me pull out another one. And he pulled out another one. Hmm. And they were completely different. And he said, this one was made at this year, 1856 or 57. This one was made a couple of years later. And, you know, just her perception in a couple of years, not remembering exactly how it was made, changed. Uh, and they well, let me pull another one. I think he ended up pulling up five of the same image, which is hmm. quite astonishing to see five of them. And we saw how each one was so different and in which way. This, wow. You know, she worked on the highlights on this one yeah. this way. and she worked. Mm. You know, and also Ansel Adams. I remember I saw a show at the Met um, maybe 10 years ago of Ansel Adams, who was very clinical. And he really wanted to reproduce kind of what he saw. And what was interesting is they showed prints side by side of ones that he made of Yosemite. Uh, I can't remember when. It must have been in the, eight, in the 1940s or what it was. And then much later, 30 years later, in the 1970s, they showed the same one and a completely different palette. It mm -hmm. was like a different image. Yeah, you wouldn't expect that. You wouldn't expect that from no. him. No. Uh, and yet that's the nature of, you know, interpretation and yeah, photography yeah. and what the artist brings every time they make an image. They yeah. print an image, you know. Right, of course, he brings up that idea of the negative being the score, right? And then the right. print being the performance of exactly. it. So, exactly. And that ties right back into it. Right? Um, and also the way we view Im you know, images. I mean, one thing that I studied uh, in graduate school was uh, hermeneutics, philosophical hermeneutics, which is the study of interpretation. How do we find meaning? Hmm. And it really is a, it is a relationship, you know. There are some that would say, you know, that, you know, meaning is determined by the artist or determined by the writer. You know, there's a definitive intention. Well, you know, the person who's viewing the art or reading the book is bringing something themselves and has a particular understanding at that moment. So interpretation meaning is constantly in flux and in flow, oh, even for the artist. I mean, sure. the artist has, you know, and I love this idea of, of it being 
a, a, a sort of a minuet, meaning it's something that we come and we bring, we go back and forth and back and forth. You know, the, the, the movie Woody Allen, uh, Annie Hall is a good example. I mean, I've seen that movie a hundred. Every time I see it, I see something different. <laughs> at this point in my life, I had these relationships, and then that informed me, or I learned something. At that point, as time went on, um, I learned something different. I learned something different about New York. I learned something different about him. As he changes, we look at him, we, we yeah. sort of reinterpret where he is now, or especially right. Manhattan is a good movie to think about. <laughs> and those terms. But, you yeah. know... And the same thing is true of photography. And it, it might even be more true of photography in that because there is this believability to photography and what we're looking at, uh, the, the context is so easily changed over time and seeing it in a different historical context sure. and seeing it in a, uh, with a different generation of people even. Right? So I think that, that, that is even more in, uh, affected. Yeah, I would say there's a false security that photography is representing reality. Sure. That we bring <laughs> to looking at images. We have this idea that photography is somehow representing a fact or representing uh, reality. And that's a real false yeah, sense yeah. of security. I, I always talk about photography in terms of believability and convincibility. Like, I, right. I, 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 I never talk about it in terms of truth. Yes. <laughs> truth is a very slippery thing, as we're finding out these days, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, the other thing about, you know, we, we, we talked a lot about... Uh, um, historical methods and things like that and and the the perils of digital sharing digitally and all that but the the truth is i probably see more tin types on instagram than anywhere else i have in my life now uh and it, so it is are it, real it tin is, types or the ones with filters no with no them? real tin types yeah. photographers i know who shoot tin types sharing their work through including you on instagram yeah. and, and so it is a great platform for sharing and for getting the word out hey for, right? i'm all yeah. for it I, yeah. I think democratizing getting work out is a wonderful thing you mm-hmm. know i mean if you go back 10 15 years who was you know, deciding who saw work were photo editors, gallerists, museums, and they were limiting what work, what whether it be art, whether it be photojournalism, they were deciding, you know, what the message was. So I think, you know, things like Instagram and Facebook and other, you know, platforms, whether it be, you know, um, you know Pinterest, I think is one of them, sure. or Flickr, uh, it's, it's a way for young artists or other artists to get their work out on their terms. And uh, generate interest in things that perhaps, you know, museums, galleries, uh, newspapers, magazines uh, would decide, you know, not to show for various reasons. I mean, I, it's a very long topic. Sure. But I do like Instagram for that reason because um, it's democratizing. And I think photography is a democratizing uh, medium. It means, especially as the cost comes down, it becomes more democratizing. But, you know, the website Clodian, you, know, you bring that up, it was a democratizing process because it was a lot less expensive to make than a daguerreotype. Tintypes were a democratizing process. Tintypes were right. democratizing. Yeah, the website Clodian came around, Frederick Scott Archer, and then yeah. there was a guy up at, uh, I think, at Kenyon College, I forget his name, who created the tintype on metal. Uh, and it meant that, you know, for about a dime or for a quarter, you can, anybody can have a, a portrait made. And it can go out into the field and it can show things uh, that couldn't be seen, like war, like the Civil War. That you can, you know, this was the beginning of democratizing and bringing things, you know, controlling, the message was being controlled for certain reasons by, you know, governments or, um, or what, whoever the powers be at that time. But now anybody can go out and show what was going on. And, and so to get back to Instagram for a second... Um, I think it's an interesting, you know, medium, you know, platform to use such a new platform, you know, a social media digital platform really on an iPhone and a smartphone of a process that's 150 years old. Yeah. Yeah. We still don't know where it's really all going yet. (laughs) No, no. It's still too early. You know, there was a wonderful quote. I like to quote it, um, you know, uh, 
Uh, there was a very famous um, interview with uh, Mao Zedong not too long before he died in the 1970s. A Western journalist interviewed him and said, uh, Chairman Mao, can you please uh, uh, tell me what you feel the ramifications are of the French Revolution? And he said, it's too early to tell. <laughs> and I think it's, too, it's really too early to tell. Um, I think wet plate has become very popular, especially in light of a film, even though I just read that Ectochrome is coming back and other emulsions are coming back and, and, and Kodak and other companies are talking about record sales. And yeah, like I just read that too. Film um, sales are up yeah. 5% across the board. I like the hope that I that Penumbra and what we're doing here has <laughs> had some influence on right. that. But I think one of the things that we talk about at Penumbra is this idea of, of having people make their own medium. And, mm-hmm. you know, wet plate Clodian, I, I used to use the word... Use, use the word or the term what play Clodian because tintype is only, you know, one uh, particular expression of that. You have, sure. you know, an ambrotype, which is a tintype on glass, which was the first positive on glass before direct tintype, positive, direct right. positive on glass. You would paint the black for the shadows. A glass negative, um, which is also Clodian, you would expose it more and develop it less, get more density. It would be used for salted paper albumin print that um, was uh, used um, by Julia Margaret Cameron and other photography artists of the day to make multiples. Um, print, uh, and then the tin type, which is on, um, uh, originally was never on tin, by the way, it was on iron, a ferrotype was right. originally called. It was um, not tin. It was not on tin. Where did the term tin, tin come from? Well, a couple of theories. One theory I heard was that these were cased images. They went into a case, and in order to fit them in the case, they would use tin snips hmm. to cut the, um, the ferrotype, the iron Japan iron plate to fit into the into the case. Um, the other theory I, I've heard and either unsubstantiated was that it cost about a dime to make a tin type, a dime because it was a different color than a penny, looked like tin. Oh. Um, and so a tin <laughs> for a tin type. Um, a tin coin. For a tin coin for a tin type. <laughs> so um, that's part of it. So the idea you can make your own medium, you can make your own film. People were that film is disappearing. And many, so it was Civil War reenactors that started um, bringing back what played Clodian because they wanted to be act, you know, have accuracy in image making on the playing, you know, on the um, playing field, on the on the <laughs> battlefield. And, and keep in mind, when we, when we think of the Civil War, most of the most of the images that are made during the Civil War were not the ones by Brady and by Gardner. The idea was that there was a a what played Clodian photographer, portrait photographer on the battlefield, right. and the soldiers would have their images made uh, that they would carry with them, and when they got killed, they would take it out right. and give it back to their family. They knew who it was. It was identifying thing. It was a way of giving like something back. Like a dog back, tag. Like right. a dog tag, and a way to give something back to the family. And those are most, most of the, uh, the ten types that we, that we find. So there's this, so those Civil War reenactors brought back, um, and I think, there's, I think these Civil War reenactors are still trying to win the war. I think that's what's happening. If I were to like, think about it, I think that there was. A, there's, I think they're winning, uh, but I think they're trying to win the war. Anyway, they haven't given up. And um, but many art photographers at that period, that time, especially in the in the late 1990s, recognized this process because film was disappearing, and they wanted to be able to continue to work in analog. And I got interested in it because I was collecting lenses and cameras, and I wanted to use those lenses and cameras for how they were meant to be used. So, especially early brass lenses, I was interested in history of photography, especially in New York City, because I was born in New York City, my father was born here, my grandfather. So I had a, uh, an interest in using this equipment as it was meant to be used for the formats they were meant to be used, and I was collecting these things. And people were throwing them, we almost throwing them away. You know, I buy these brass lenses at the flea market, and people said, oh, nobody wants digital. stuff I said, great, give it to me, I'll take it. Yeah, as a kid, I'd see those and not even know what they were or right. what they were for. Right, yeah. and I'm very curious, and I wanted to, to use them, so... Uh, and, and that's sort of what got me involved with these alternative 
you know, 19th century historical processes. I started taking workshops, took a wet plate collision. I took a wet plate collision workshop, and that was it. You know, I said, that this is what I want to do, because I had no idea mm-hmm. that um, you could have such, you know, control and fun out of making <laughs> photographs. And then I met Eric Talman, who's the founder of the Center for Alternative Photography, and he asked me if I wanted to be in. I, uh, my first workshop was with Joni um, uh, Sternbach, who I took a, a workshop with her at the ICP, and she also teaches here. And I'd like to highlight her because she's somebody who learned from Civil War reenactors, a guy named John Coffer, who then just took that process and learned that process, and she made it her own, making her art with that process. So a very modern uh, sensibility, making her own art in the 19th century process. So the idea for us is not to recreate the Civil War, and there are some people that use it for that. The idea is to create art right. um, and with various. And you don't know which process is going to work Right. Jive with what particular person's vision or sensibilities. It's like choosing your medium and right. right. Yeah. And sometimes the medium chooses you. Yeah. Right? I yeah. think, you know, I did various processes and wet plate included chose me. And I love people. I do portrait photography and I use portrait lens and the equipment. And it's a wonderful way to engage, you know, the process. Um, that's one of the things that. Um, that I like about especially web play collodion. But, you know, um, I think people are really hungry for something that they make themselves, that they can express themselves with, that they have a thing. Um, they're not reliant on a corporation or a company making a, you know, especially I remember in the 90s, oh, did you hear this Azo paper? Oh, and that went away, and this, pro- and this film, and that. every other day another right. film or paper disappeared. And it changed people who were so used to having, you know, they were complacent. They were used to having right. this thing, and this gave them the image and the shadows and the dynamic range and everything they wanted. It was gone. But that's also the history of photography. It's never been about the artists who were using it. It's always been about what was a commercial success, what right. got it into more people's hands. And if artists were able to also use that, that was great. And if they were able to hold on to something, that was great, too. But it was never about what you know, what the arts uh, were doing. Right. Yeah. No, never. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Um, you know, I mean, the film that just disappeared that I love was that Fuji instant film. The Polaroid sure. disappeared and, you know, I stockpiled it. But, you know, even that, I mean, it's, you, know, you can only have it for so long and if you don't use it, you lose it. And I love that, that, that medium. But basically that's, you know, the idea of the Penumbra Foundation was to make available for anybody, not just any photographer who was interested in um, the history of photography or analog photography, the ability to make images, mm-hmm. you know, find the process that works best for them. And it's also a way to inform you, even if you're a digital photographer. So anybody who learns you know, uh, historical or photographic principles can then apply that to their digital capture and the digital image making or the digital printing. Right. Once you understand these basic principles, f-stop, uh, hyperfocus, shadows, light, uh, all these things, depth of field, um, then you understand how to use your digital camera um, a certain way. And that's, we sort of talk about that, and we like the idea that whatever kind of photography you do, having a comprehensive understanding of photography informs uh, that. So that's one of the things that we do here. And uh, part of the going along with this idea of, um, you know, having be, people be able to practice these processes and, and uh uh, a sense of preservation and, and talking about all that. You also have, we were just upstairs and saw this incredible library of right. technical books, right? Mm-hmm. That you're yeah. in the process of digitizing. So is that part of it is also is like making sure that this, this brand, this knowledge of these esoteric things yep. don't get lost. Exactly. And you know, the idea of dissemination and also sharing of knowledge is very important to what we do here. So it's not just, you know, we're learning it for ourselves. The idea is we're learning it for future generations. The history of photography is very important. I always refer to the, I, I think the history of anything is like this, but I, I, I'm so engaged in the history of photography that I, I often refer to it as a jigsaw puzzle with infinite pieces. <laughs> You're never going to get every piece, but you know, every little piece that you get, 
offers some other insight. And the, the library, which is Eric's, uh, I have some books as well. I collect mostly um, early photographic lens manuals because they go along with the lenses that I collect. But he collects, you know, early photographic manuals. And not only, you know, early photographic manuals from the period, but every edition. So the Silver Sunbeam is the most comprehensive uh, manual for the wet plate clothing photographer that was published, I think, I can't remember exactly, 1860 to 1866 or whatever it was within that time period. And he had every edition because every edition they took some things out and they put some things in. Huh. So the idea is to have, a, have the complete, you wow. know, yeah. uh, range of these things. Um, and some of them are annotated. Some of them have, you know, margin, you know, little footnotes or marginalia. Uh, and there's so much to learn. Some of them were, were owned by famous photographers of the period. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you find these things and Eric would open it up and go, this belonged to, can you believe it? <laughs> no, I can't. It's really quite... Uh, but the idea is, 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 is and, and on various theory, you mentioned conservation. So, mm. you know, for, for, for photographs, which some of them are deteriorating, they could be in, in, in historical societies, um, local historical societies, um, in museums that have not been cataloged. We looked at the de- deteriorating. We have to first understand what process they were done, was, was used to make them, before we can understand how to conserve them or restore them. Uh, and a lot of these manuals talk about all the different chemical processes and you know little by little you know we've worked a little bit with with nyu we've worked a little bit with other conservators because they first have to identify it right and then we're also working on a program to bring conservators in here to learn the processes and do them firsthand so they can see mm-hmm. you know many people look at an image and they have no idea how it was made and the, the famous the famous quote is oh people were not happy in the 19th century they did smile oh yeah you know, yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> Yeah, well, and this is yeah. from like, I mean, I've heard this on like the radio NPR. I mean, very famous art historians saying, oh, they weren't happy in the 19th century. Then what are you <laughs> They were more about? serious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, it's like a, it's a one minute, two minute exposure, whatever it is. It's hard to hold a smile like that. That's why they're not smiling. You know, also a lot of people didn't like to show their teeth. That was another oh, thing. They had, they didn't have the dentistry. <laughs> well, they didn't have the dentistry we right. had. And, you know, the famous Oki from, you know, with, with uh, Dorothy Lang, you know, they would cover their teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, you know, part of, and they, you know, you understand a photograph differently when you understand the historical context. And understanding the process is certainly part of that. I think one misconception about these historical processes, uh, a lot of, a lot of times when people are first introduced to them, they see them in, I mean, you mentioned Sally Mann earlier, like Sally Mann, she definitely is not like people who are doing wet plate collodion were making like technically beautiful, perfect kind of prints. And that's not her interest in using that medium. Right. So she's much, much into her process and how it affects the, the image quality. And, and that's, that's goes to her artistic engagement with the medium. But I, I remember when I first saw, Almost every platinum print I ever saw when I first got into photography, it was all about that the brush strokes at the edge of the paper, you know, to show that it was gone. And so, like having the hand, the literal hand of the photographer into the making of it. And, you know, I think that 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 especially the non-silver world, it kind of colored the, the idea of like what you could do with these processes yeah using historic processes meant you should do things that seemed historical or even well, it affected you know, how you worked well, with the subject let me let me i, I think i, I want to address that because i think I, I think the thing i often say to people is that artifacts are not art <laughs> you know a lot of people sally man is an exception and i've heard her speak um she said you know and her work is her vision is so strong for the sake of argument the way to think about her is that 
you know, you, you see beyond the artifacts to her vision. The artifacts sort of are, 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 are a, a supporting role. They're not the main thing. Many people see her work and they love the artifacts and they, be, they do a lot of derivative work because they love the look of it. But the work they're doing is not, not vision-based. And I think, you know, you know, for me, art photography comes from a very unique place, a sui generis place, a particular person's voice. And many people never, the hardest part of being an artist is to find your voice and to have a very subjective expression. And it's not artifacts. Artifacts are not a subjective voice. They're artifacts. So it might be, I would almost say it's craft. By the same token, there are some people that, and, 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 and to get back to Sally Mann for a second, she herself would say, you know, I get criticism for how I do my wet plate clothing. For the life of me, even if I tried, I couldn't. <laughs> That's not who I am, and she's not trying to make. And people who like her work are not interested necessarily in the artifact. They're interested in her. They're interested in what she's saying. She's interested in her voice. Um, and that's where I am in terms of art. So I'm often showed a lot of wet play clean. We see it on you know, um, Instagram, and, and we see it in various places. And the artifacts are the leading, yes. the, the, are the leading character. Um, I think for art, and, and the hardest thing to do is to find that voice and to have something to say. Um, and to go to, I mean, artists go to places that they themselves are scared to go, but they go there and they find a way to, to, to relate a message. And if the artifacts help that or support that, that's great. But they don't rely on the artifacts of art. So that's what we're interested in here. We're interested in helping artists and supporting artists to find their voice, to find a process that works well with them. You don't know what that's going to be. It's, it's a huge mystery uh, oftentimes. And... That's, uh, and just the, uh, the flip side of that is that there are people who make perfectly clean plates. I, like, I happen to like a very clean plate and always working to make my technique better, you know, make my lighting better, my development better, my chemistry better, the way I put the developer on. I, I, I don't, I'm not, it, you can never, with wet plate, you can, you're working with a wet thing, you're working with liquids, you're never going to get the perfect plate. As, as, and that's kind of why I keep on doing it because I know I'm, gonna, I'm trying, but there are those who make perfectly clean plates who also do not make what I would say art. They make a perfect technical expression. Mm. And, but what they're saying has no... Yeah, you still have to make the photograph. Yeah. You still have to make it, but you still have to have something to say. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm often showed very clean, perfect, you know, um, plates. It could be whatever the process is. But what are you saying? So yes, you know, you know, for me, I like a clean plate because what I want, I do a lot of portraiture, what is most important to me is the subject. Who am I photographing? I want the person to be encountering that person that I photographed, the portrait that I made. And if there are all these artifacts on their face and all over the place, it distracts from that experience that I had making that image and from the subject. Mm -hmm. So that's my approach um, to the wet plate process and the art that I make. In the early 90s, I was working at a company called uh, New American Platinotype Company, and the, that was started by Robert uh, Steinberg, photographer, but his, his company had before that was Palladio, which did a, plat a machine-coated platinum palladium paper, wow. and they made this beautiful, you could buy it, you know, you'd come in a sealed packet, and you'd get 11 by 14, 8 by 10 sheets, and uh, 
he, he, when they had that company, they would encounter this a lot of time where some people wanted it because, oh, this is a great, perfect platinum right. plating paper I can right. just get to work on. Right. And then other people were like, oh, I don't want to use it because I, I can't the have the artifact. Right. You know, I can't What's have the point? That. Yeah. And so it's something, it's something that, uh, we, you know, you run across. Photography right? of the big tent. Yeah, yeah. It, it really is. is. Yeah. And everybody has a different opinion and, you know, a different idea. And that's fine. And there's room for every, right. you know, and, yeah. and I think... Look, I, I don't want to be too judgmental. I guess I, I tend to be. But I, I really like people to find, you know, photography at its core is, is a storytelling medium that can happen in one image. And what you put on that space, that rectangle, I remember seeing somebody who spoke at the ICP. I can't remember who it was. And they, they said, I was asked what I thought the best, uh, what they thought the best invention was, the human invention. They said, the rectangle. <laughs> <laughs> You know, very witty. You know, I'm more interested in what people are saying than really if they're, you know, if, you know, I see artifacts as sort of a lifestyle thing. You know what I mean? It's sort of like a... Yeah, yeah no, and... Uh, if you like it, great, but, you know, but what's the piece saying, you know? Yeah. Is it informing? Artifact is... Is it challenging? Is I think art should challenge, challenge yeah. us, you know, especially in these times. Right. Uh, it's funny now, even uh, when we... When I see uh, I see portfolios, people applying to the graduate program at Columbia, and uh, forget historical processes. Often people will apply with uh, stuff they shot with thirty five millimeter, and they'll leave in the sprocket holes right. to show that it was and right. and it'll have like dust and scratches right. on it, you know, to show that it's you know they scratched it, <laughs> yeah. they that, they distressed it. It's like yeah, this remember when distressed jeans and distressed uh, furniture was very oh, yeah. yeah. No, you know, it's all, it's all coming back. French, it's all coming back, yeah. Well, speaking of, uh, you know, you just mentioned your, you, you know, you've been perfecting technique and getting things to, to look the way you want for your vision. You also mentioned before we were recording that you had uh, worked out a way to use flash with strobe, joints. yeah, strobe with tintype. Yeah, I mean, it's, these things come about, you know, uh, necessity is really the mother of invention. You know, it's really, you know, trite, I guess, but it's true. <laughs> You know, you need to figure something out, and and, and and photography, I think, in many ways, is just problem solving. If you're somebody who likes problems, you know, photography is the perfect thing for you. I love being challenged. I love a, a technical problem. I love um, an emotional problem. I love, um, you know, working with people. That in itself is, can be a problem um, in, in a portrait studio. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we discovered is that, you know, we, we originally, what plays floating photography is a slow process, ASA1. And um, so, are people leaving with a sunburn? Is that what's going on? Well, you know, we were using Kino flows, or we were using these sort of um, uh, Kino type, you know, um, fluorescent lights, which were daylight balanced and very mm-hmm. bright. And you know, one of the problems is still with that, you still had to have um, the light itself was kind of harsh in itself, but you know, so a strobe. But but a lot people of small had, pupils, I guess. Yeah, people are squinting, especially if they had blue <laughs> eyes, and um, it was hard to control the light, and, um, and the lights took up a lot of room. There were these banks of lights. And so the North Light Studio, which we have, is a wonderful studio, since it was being rented out so much. And it was a beautiful studio. You can't take wet plate up there because you're, you're, you know, you're dropping silver on the floor and it's staining the floor, mm-hmm. and this sort of thing. So, and also, um, we wanted to photograph, and also sharpness of somebody sitting for, you know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, 40, depending how far you stop down, how long you stop down, uh, you're losing, you know, sharpness, you know. Well, sometimes that's good, like Julia Margaret Cameron would say, you know, who, who decided where the focus should be anyway, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the famous quote. Um, and how important is sharpness? Well, that's a different conversation. But we wanted to be able to have a commercial portrait studio. The stuff, the, the images that we make, uh, the, the, the funds go to, the, you know, to um, 
uh, fund our programs. So in order to do that, you know, and since we didn't have the North Light Studio to use and the continuous lights were hard to use, even though we use that for workshops, um, we came up with the idea of uh, using strobe. Is it possible? You know, I think it was Eric who said, let's try strobe. So it's an Eric was just say, here are some strobes, you know. <laughs> He would, he would buy them. He bought them to begin with. Now the studio was Eric? Eric Talman is the founder of the organization. He used to own LTI and many photo labs around, and he was the one that started uh, the uh, Center for Alternative Photography, which then became... So he's the co-founder of... He's the founder of the Center for Alternative, Alternative Photography and the co-founder of Panama Foundation. So we co-founded the Panama Foundation together. And I was, it, was, it was me who said, let's turn into a nonprofit organization. Let's do various programs and he agreed and uh, very generously agreed and donates the space that we're in but he does not donate you know any kind of fund for for um, salaries or for operating costs or materials that's all on me and our executive board and I say that for a very particular reason we have a membership program so anybody who becomes a member um, does get benefit of becoming a member but it also supports our program so I direct people to that so and he came up with the strobe idea he came up originally with the strobe idea but not how to do it he uh. said here so that was all on me <laughs> no we had conversations about you know strobe we did talk about it i think is it possible to do it and then he generously bought a couple of strobes for me to try out and then i you know then i started you know i, I look i'm a natural like guy i'm like a like a digital you know wet plate chloe what do i know about strobes right <laughs> so the, the strobe was a unique challenge because the issue was, even though WetPlate only has five stops in dynamic range, mm-hmm. it doesn't have real black-black, it have real white-whites, um, it, it is kind of a contrasty uh, process. So strobe, it's interesting, it's, it's this weird interplay. So strobe actually created this contrast that we wanted to some degree, you know, but didn't want to do another degree. So it's, it's this weird degree. So the, the question is, how are we going to use strobe the first thing was the ASA or the ISO being one, what power do we need? And we started off with sort of low power and did nothing, you know, and then we kept on. Basically, we got to the point where we needed a lot of power. You know, we were maxing at our pack, 4,800 watt cycles, and the distance had a lot to do with it. And then, you know, we started finding beauty dishes and soft boxes and finding ways because, you know, you don't want to, uh, especially if you're working with somebody who's older or somebody who has, especially with wet play, if they have you know, freckles, all these things of mm-hmm. using these lenses, even though these lenses from the 19th century, they're very sharp. So all these things need to be mitigated. So it was quite the challenge. And now we've gotten it down to the point where we can, you know, uh, photograph people using strobe and get a, um, a very nice image and very sharp. Uh, and then we wanted to photograph children and we wanted to photograph oh, dogs and they moved. So right. I developed um, <laughs> uh, using my Graflex Super D SLR 4x5 SLR. I uh, hooked it up uh, with strobe so that I can Instead of blocking the person in, I can follow the focus with them. It's a handheld mm-hmm. four by five, you know. Um, so what's wonderful about, you know, any of these processes of photography in general is that you're confronted with a problem. How are you going to solve it? And strobes solve certain problems. And then it created other problems. Well, then how do you deal with the contrast problem? How do you deal with the low ISO problem? How do you deal with photographing children? And I just love that, that whole aspect of photography and especially, you know, historical photographic processes, they pose it's, particular challenges. That's pretty wild. I mean, you've got it down to the speed of a strobe. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. And you guys started even going out to events and stuff, right? Right. So um, then we, you know. Bringing the studio out of the studio. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, the idea, I mean, it's often, the wet plate cloning process, tintypes is referred to as the Polaroid of the 19th century because you can literally have somebody sit down and in 15 minutes have a, an image in your hand. Right. You can walk away with. 
And we figured out all these ways to, um, we did Sundance in 2016 with Victoria Will, and we did, I think, 175 to close to 200 plates in five days. Hmm. So we had to come up with a system where we can pour plates, shoot them, right. develop them, process them, dry them, varnish them, and people walk away with a Jazz Age lawn party. Um, <laughs> with another venue that we love working at because people are, they're basically tailor-made. They're already dressed up in these beautiful uh. 1920s outfits. <laughs> um, uh, is and, and they love it. You, know, you, you get this one. We use Petzl Portland with the swirl and the trees. And, um, I, and then I was shooting in the in the VIP area with my Graflex and fast lenses in the VIP area with Fuji Instant Film. So we're doing analog back there as well. And then Photoville. Photoville is sort of oh, a sure. built-in audience for us because yeah. all these photographers are like, "What? This is this is <laughs> photography here? Wow! I can get a tintype made and then." This is that we did been with them since the beginning, and this is the first year we used strobe. Wow. There. We used to use natural. Because the reason we started doing that is because, you know, when the light went down. You were out of business. Out of business. <laughs> the people wanted their kid. They wouldn't stay still. Right. They, they, Do you photograph my dog? And the dog was like a blur. It was like, you know, like from one of those movies, like The Ring or something. Or, you, you know. just say, that's, that's how it was done. That's historical. Exactly. <laughs> Bring the dog back after right. it dies, and we'll make a portrait. It's, oh, it's nice. hysterical. Not nice. historical, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Way to go dark. I mean, memorial uh, portraits. Memorial that's right. portraits. And that's now we're doing, you know, we're going to be, we're beginning to do weddings and other events. We just did a shoot here, a promotional shoot uh, with a model to do full figure. So full figure poses, you know, one thing to do with tight shot or half mm-hmm. um, or even three quarters. But when you have to light, and keep in mind, these strobes need to be kind of close uh, to the subject, there's only so far you can pull back. So ah. I have very fast, I mean, I have lenses that, you know, are very fast that I can pull the light further back. And, you know, so everything, I just love this idea of, of having a challenge and sort yeah. of, and, yeah. and then perfecting it. I mean, what, the, the first thing to shoot full figure, well, then, well, how are you, then how are you going to light it? Mm-hmm. You know, and then the posing and then, you know, all the different aspects of it I find very gratifying. Well, speaking of different aspects, why don't we... Yeah. we so we've touched on the library and right. uh, we've touched on the portrait studio that we're right. sitting in right now. And there's two more studios upstairs. And, yeah. yeah. Right. So but maybe I'll just, yeah, I'll, just, I'll just sort of sort of you know, roll off some of the things that we're doing here. I, I, I think education is very important. So we have the workshop um, program, which teaches early photographic processes, just about any process you can think of from daguerreotype. And we teach the Mercury daguerreotype method with a guy named Mike Robinson, who's probably the foremost historian and technician and artist working. Um, he's using the Southworth and Hawes style of uh, daguerreotype. What, the big plate uh, <laughs> daguerreotype? Well, they, they? I think, I don't know how big they go. They went to okay. full plate with big, but he teaches, he, you know, he's developed a whole way of really making a beautiful uh, plate. Um, mm. So he, he got the, the, the sensitizing of the plate down, he's gotten the exposure times down, he's gotten the development times down, and you really learn the process as it would have been done in the 19th, very historical approach. Oh, okay. And everything that we teach you, we try to teach from a historical approach. Um, you know, with the, with the exception of the tin type, we use aluminum from a trophy company that is already blackened. Wow. So we're not nice. blackening our own plates. We're not. Is know, it anodized black? Is that what it's it is? Anod- I don't know how they make it. It's like yeah. a black enamel, you know, and it's got a nice plastic over it so you can peel it so it stays nice and clean. Ah. Um, so you don't have to do that varnish then. And the, we don't have to black it. It's called Japaning. Oh, that okay. would be done right. with as- asphaltum or creosote. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's even, you know, in the 19th century, there weren't tin typists sitting around blackening their plates and sticking up their entire block right. with <laughs> asphaltum. They would buy from a supply company, Anthony or Scoville, whatever they would buy the place they were blackened in factories right like 
you know, you buy film. You're not really coding your own film. Um, you would coat your own plate for wet plate, but, you know, let's face it. You know, you're not going to blacken your own plate, even yeah. though some people do. Some people want to black. Well, you can play on iron. They can go and they can roll their own iron. They can smelt their own ore. They can do whatever they want. There, there, there are particular um, steps that we forego because we want people making work. If you want to do it historically, you're doing it for that reason, fine. But if you want to make work, you know, we find materials that are inexpensive. We want people to be, we, we, we make it accessible. The idea is that, you know, the cloning is the cloning, the developer is the developer. You know, if you use an aluminum plate um, and it means that you can, one plate costs you about a quarter for four by five, and uh, you can cut it yourself, you can have somebody cut it, it's a good way to learn it. For the most part, we try to teach historically. So with, with you know, Platinum Palladium, the person who teaches with us, Carl Weiss, who's a wonderful um, artist as well, would teach, uh, teach you how to develop a negative, how to expose the negative for Platinum, which has a long, very long dynamic range. You, get, you can really maintain the details in the black, and the sh- especially in the highlights. You can get a very dense, expose it you know, to get a dense negative. And then he would teach you how to uh, process it with pyro, which is how it, it was done, you know, by Stieglitz in the 19th century. Pyrogallic acid. Pyrogallic acid. Right. Uh, so we would teach that way. So, you know, you can understand the historical way it was done, but then he also teaches the digital negative. It's gotten to the point where this digital technology uh, with inkjet printers, it can make a wonderful, dense, uh, very detail-oriented um, uh, digital negative that you can then get a lot of that range and depth. So he teaches that as well. So as technology um, marches on and these processes become easier. So at the end of the day, you're getting a platinum print, but you can take a 35 millimeter negative and scan it. You can take a digital image and, you know, and, and, and scan it and make a digital negative. Right. So, but we try to teach everything historically as best we can. We do some shortcuts where we think it's reasonable to do it and we make um, calculated uh, decisions on what to do. So we teach every process from daguerreotype all the way through a traditional film and even digital as it pertains to, you know, contact printing and things like sure. that. Uh, and then uh, as, as we develop more, we're doing more advanced classes, uh, and we are also interested in doing more vision-based classes and master classes. So we're going to be working with artists who would uh, be interested in, in teaching the way they work, you know, and some of them are proprietary, but we're going to work with ones that were less so. Uh, and then we also want to have full semester classes eventually. Um, so all the education is pushing to a point where we want to develop a full curriculum of historical photographic process from an educational perspective that eventually will culminate into a BFA and MFA program hmm. that which we would like to, I would like to have as being half funded. So hmm. have the kids pay full price, whatever through grants or loans or their parents, whoever they do it. <laughs> and those kids um, would be subsidizing those who can't afford it at all. And then we would have, uh, because the building can only limit a certain number of students, the idea we'd have 16 students total. Hmm. So, and the idea of the foundation is to give away, right. you know, money. So our idea is to give away education. So you would have um, those students by invitation. We would work with organizations. One organization I like is called BDC, which is Bronx Documentary Center, and they work with inner, inner city kids in the Bronx. Uh, we would find an organization that would find that kid who would most benefit from this kind of program. And then we would, once we get that program together, we would work with an institution that would give us accreditation. They would have the digital part of it, and we would have the analog part of it. Right. 
um, because we're not going to reinvent the wheel. I mean, we can't get accreditation. It would be too difficult. So we would be part of a greater program. They would probably handle uh, the registration. And then their students, would be they would have a built-in analog history of photography program built into it. So that's the ultimate goal of where we're going, because I like the idea. My, my grandfather went to Cooper Union, which was a free education at one time. Mm-hmm. They've taken that away. It's coming back, though, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I think that I think they... Well, part of their process- charter. I mean, how can they get away yeah. with not yeah, doing yeah, yeah. it? They were told they have to bring it back. They yeah. better. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the land under, I believe, the land under the Chrysler building yeah, they is still- owned by the Cooper Union, and they the Chrysler building rents that, that money with earmarked for that... Programs. Right. Right. So... Yeah. That's what informed me. My grandfather got a free education. He became a photographer for the New York Times. And I think that the idea of free education, especially with Bernie Sanders uh, and, and, and City College used to be free, the idea of having free education is really dear to me. And I think for photography and image making, the three fields that I'm most interested in is art photography, photojournalism, and long story documentary photography. Those are the three programs I want to teach here. But we also want to teach kids you know, how to, you know, to drawing classes, writing classes, how to talk about their work is important. Uh, how to manage um, a, a career, you know, how to uh, balance a checkbook, you know, how to interact in the greater worlds. Yeah. You know, I mean, these are things that I want to teach them. I just tell them, I, I, see, since I'm giving them an education, I'm not charging them for it. I want to give them as much as I possibly can so they can be successful leaving. You know, I, I, I want to turn the model upside down. I'm not, I'm not, you know, this is not a business. We really want to... Uh, create an environment where education is the most important thing. That's my vision for Penumbra. Mm-hmm. And everything else supports that, whether it be the lecture series, which I'll talk about, the Tintype Studio, Artist and Residency Program, which I'll talk about. The Future Storefront here. Future Storefront. It right. all is going to that so that, I mean, you know, you know, my attitude is why live if you're not going to help somebody and do mm-hmm. good in the world? So the other programs we have, the Tintype that we talked about, we have an Artist and Residency, pro- residency Program called the Workspace Program, which supports two artists uh, per year, um, who are given a stipend, given a place to do their work, and given their materials. And we, we actually have something called a, um, a benefit auction to support and fund this program. It's on Paddle 8. If you go to Penumbra Foundation Paddle 8, you can see the work that was donated by people in our community and wonderful artists. Have work in there. Andrew Moore comes to mind. Do you ever um, show that work here as part of the benefit? Or? We have. It's all. Out of, we haven't shown it. We don't have the, the ex- exhibition space. Um, mm. Hopefully in the future we're working on having an exhibition space and that'll mm-hmm. be part of it. Um, that's why I say everything is in flux, but hopefully, you know, I don't know when or if that'll happen, but it, we're working towards having an exhibition space, but right now the work is online. John Dugdale is another artist, Joni Sternbach donated work, um, and many, many others. Wonderful work there. Um, so I recommend please go take a look, and, you know, all the, the funds that we raise will go to, you know, support artists and help them in their career. So there's that program, the workspace program, the, um, the education program mentioned, the library program mentioned, the research program. So we're, we have scientists, we have a couple of photographers, scientists who are working to bring back particular um, photographic emulsions, some hmm. of which um, I can't talk too much about them. But Oh, you don't want to name them? Yeah. I don't want to name yeah, them, yeah. no. Um, I That's don't want fine. the cat out of the bag. <laughs> nope, nope. But the idea is to not only uh, bring back these processes to teach, um, here and a part of the greater hmm. history of photography and also for conservators, uh, but also maybe to make a product. Hmm. And if, if we can make an emulsion or a product that we think fits in well with what we do and fits in with the greater analog photographic world, it's something that can help fund our program as well. You know, maybe at some point we'll do a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo huh. or something like that. Um, the lecture series is a wonderful series. It was informed by uh, the ICP 
which no longer has it, which I think is unfortunate. It was a wonderful way for them to support their alumni because they're wonderful alums that went through their, their program and, and then they're wonderful artists who come and speak about their work. They used to videotape them and some of them were actually online. I mean, you can mm-hmm. see there was actually an audio tape. You know, I, I often say to people about the artist lecture series, what if you can meet Michelangelo, you know? <laughs> you know, what if you can meet some wonderful artist that you love, you know, Caravaggio, uh, and, and hear him talk about or hear them talk about their work. Wouldn't you do that? Yeah. Well, that's what the artist series is. You get to, to beat the artists who are doing wonderful work. They show their work. They talk about their process. They talk about what got them into photography. And then you get to you know, ask them questions and engage them. And sometimes they have a book. Then they do a book signing. And I, oh, I got to say, when I went to the lecture series at the ICP, I bought the entire series. I didn't want to know who it was. Because if I did, I might say, eh, I don't want to see that person. I was always surprised that somebody I thought I wouldn't like, hmm. when I heard them speak about their work, I love their work. There are other people who I love their work, and then when I heard them speak, they won't say who they are. <laughs> you didn't want to hear I them anymore. I didn't want to hear I didn't like their work anymore. I'm like, really? Um, but I love both of those experiences. Yeah. So a wonderful way to engage our community is to come and see a lecture. Last semester, um, Leandro Bijado is his name. He still teaches at the ICP, worked there for many years. He's now our program uh, director. He used to help, he used to help um, with Bill Bach put together the lecture series. He's now our program director. He put together the lecture series. And he also put together the artist in residency program. And last mm-hmm. semester, he put together a series of all women artists, seven mm-hmm. women artists talking about their work. And I think women, you know, historically, continue to be underrepresented in the art world. And I think we as an organization, we're a progressive organization, want to be able to make a little bit of a statement about that. So um, this semester we have uh, another roster of artists. I recommend go to our website. And every semester we're trying to bring, we want to support emerging artists and artists oh, who relate to what we do, but really give those artists a voice to our community and the greater community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I saw you have Abe Morell coming, Abe who Morell, obviously yeah. is very much in line with a lot of the processes yes. you do. Uh, he just had a great piece done on him by uh, CBS. Television oh, yeah. showing his uh, tent right. camera camera yeah, obscura obscura work. Work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and I just saw him at the at the uh, FIT. He's booked at FIT now. So uh, you have Gregory uh, Halpern coming up, right. who just had all the success with that book uh, Zizix that right. like, won the award mm-hmm. and all exactly. of that. Uh, I've got uh, Andrea Modica's in conversation right. with Larry Fink, yes. and uh, and a couple others that I didn't write down. And your but homework, I, you've done yeah, your yeah, homework. Yeah, well, I, did, I did see those coming um, up. Yeah, at penumberfoundation.org. Dot org, of course. Oh, oh, gee, come on, come on. Oh, we're a dot org. I <laughs> right. should know that. Dot <laughs> org. <laughs> yeah. Um, so and so then we so we're working on a photomechanical program. We have a press that we want to bring not full blown reviewer, but we want to do some form of photomechanicals. Um, the library program I mentioned, uh, the education program, the tint type tutor, is there anything I'm missing? Well, I think it's important to mention that as part of like this holistic full, you know, this thing you're building here that in the basement is um, uh, oh, Frank, Frank Rubio. Of course. We got Frank um, Rubio as a camera repair, right? So, right. So, you know, we have the camera doctor, which is very important uh, to mention, who used to work at Lens and Repro. Um, I used to, my father used to bring me there as a kid. Um, I, miss, I gotta I say, miss, I miss Lens and Repro. I, I used to go there. Too. He brings yeah. strobes there, all kinds of things. I'm yeah. very still good friends with Jeffrey Kay, um, mm-hmm. who I know for many, many years, and he still comes around. Um, the whole so Calumet when, debacle, right? Yeah. Right. So they went to Calumet and they went to business. But, you know, but Frank, when they closed that store, he was there for 15 years. And, you know, Frank was the guy that I would break my camera trying to fix it and I'd bring it to Frank <laughs> and he would repair it and I became very good friends with him that way and then when I found he was out of a job um, I said why don't you come to Penumbra hmm. he said sure so we worked out a really good um, you know uh, relationship and um, 
and way for him to set up down there. And he does everything. He does everything from digital chips to large format, to medium format, uh, and also making parts. He's going to have, he, though we're already setting up a 3D printer machine to make parts for these cameras. He'll, uh, he'll cut out and make little wet plate film holders uh, and just on and on and on. He's a wonderful um, resource to have. Uh, downstairs, right next to my office. Yeah, <laughs> it's very accessible. Exactly. I'm always showing, Frank, look at this. I broke it. I'm trying to, uh, okay, give it to me. You know, and he's like, <laughs> um, and he modifies, he modifies my graph lexes. He put, you know, strobe um, attachments to it. It's a right. wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful asset. And yeah, we great to have here. No, that was, a, I, that was, I was so pleasantly surprised when you uh, right. showed me that you have this camera repair right. operation going on. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And he brought another guy, Matt Swader, who used to work at London Repro, who was helping him um, and learning camera repair and, you know, continue the tradition of camera repair. Because, you know, we have to, we have, it's like watch repair. The, the people are, they're, they're you know, they're, they're ceasing to exist. Yes. It's hard yes. to find a good watch repair. So I think the same thing with camera repair. So we're very fortunate uh, to have him. And then we have studio spaces. And um, we have, so we have the North Light Studio. We cut the roof of our building off uh, to make a 19th century uh, portrait uh, gallery uh, that's available to rent. People want to have events there; they want to shoot there. We it's have, a beautiful, beautiful space. So uh, yeah, uh, it's great it, windows. It really is, and um, we have non-UV glass for people who want to shoot, um, you know, wet plate or, or daguerreotype or other processes. Um, then we have another studio, Studio B, that is where we have our lecture series, but people also rent that, or we have our workshops there. And we have the third floor dark room, which is where people, where many, you know, we do daguerreotype their wet plate and research, but sometimes we rent it out for people who want to do these processes and we help them. And we have, you know, private tutorial programs. So if there's somebody who wants one-on-one and wants to learn the process. And we also help you know, artists who don't want to do it themselves, you know, help them make the work. We work with many artists who want to do a platinum print or they want to do a tintype project and they have the idea, but they don't have the skills. And we work with them to help them to uh to you know actualize uh their work that's you know the thing that that we do that's fantastic well uh i have one last question that's sure. near and dear to my heart and i hope you can answer which is if someone was to go out and buy just one great fountain pen oh <laughs> what would it be what should they go get Wow, that's a tough. You know, there was. A, I was just at the. Um, there was a wonderful exhibit. I never give short answers to anything. Have you noticed that? Um, <laughs> there was a wonderful exhibit at the Art Institute of Chicago. I was just there. My wife is from Chicago, the South Side, by the way. South Side. Uh, South Side. <laughs> Shout out. Um, and um, they had an exhibit of Maholi Naj, and I always remember that he. Um, I thought he designed the Park of Fifty One. But the Parker 51 would be the short answer, but he designed this particular desk base and holder for the Parker 51. Um, he was living in the United States, and he worked with Parker Penn. I think the Parker 51 is probably one of the most functional, beautiful, um, you know, form-following function type pens. It's uh, from the machine age, designed in, in 1941. The original Parker 51 had a plunger in the back, a vacuumatic style that would suckle, it would hold a lot of ink, and had a little shell so that your fingers wouldn't get ink all over them, and a very smooth nib, and just a beautiful, you know, I think that would be probably the apex of the sound pen, Parker 51. <laughs> Jeffrey, so, thank you very much for all your, that's right. all the good information. <laughs> all that expertise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> thank you both very much. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wonderful no, this to be was here. Great. Thank you. Bye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>